My name is Micah Porter, and you're listening to Level Playing Field. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Level Playing Field. Level Playing Field is my podcast, and my name is Randy Boos, where I interview LGBT athletes and sports personalities. This week, we are jumping into education, and we are talking to Micah Porter. Micah came out late in life after being married uh, with two kids, a career in education, coaching cross-country and track, and we talk about all that. We talk about how his life changed when he came out. Along the way, he tried gay conversion therapy uh, with his pastor at his local church, and we talk about how that affected him. I hope you enjoy this episode with Micah. Without further ado, here is our chat. Micah, welcome. Uh, thanks for having me, Randy. I'm excited to be here. One of the big reasons I'm excited to talk to you today is your background in education. In the news the last few years over in the States and over in England as well, LGBT education has been in the news a lot. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit about you. How were you as a child? How did you, uh, what was your childhood like? Sure. Well, I grew up in Midwestern America. I'm 46 and came from a a really small town in, in Southern Michigan. Uh, one blinking light, red town, still that way. Um, everybody there was seemed to be either a farmer or an educator. My what parents was the population like? Uh, in terms of demographics, or just like how many, like how many people in your town? I think there's 600 in the village. It, oh it wow! It's like a village of Stockbridge. You know, it, it's sprawling. So when you get into the Midwest and in farming areas, a lot of the kids live far apart, but they come together at schools. So Stockbridge was uh, certainly one of the smaller schools in in that part of the state, but it drew kids from, you know, upwards of 20, 30 miles away uh, to come to the the elementary, the middle and the high school. Being born in the 70s, like you were definitely um, growing up was different. For me, I was born in 74. And you know, I think it in about 1980, I started Little League and, and stuff like that. Right. As, as a kid, did you have the same thing where, I imagine in a small town, it's the same thing where all the kids do the same sport? Yeah, so sports was just part of what I grew up with. Um, I was pretty athletic and uh, was blessed with uh, being pretty fast. That was kind of my, my uh, athletic gift. And that translated into me being involved in in lots of sports. I I wrestled, I played baseball, I played uh, football, cross country, eventually in high school, basketball. Um, You know, it it was year round and multiple sports. So it was just part of part of what I did. My my father was a college swimmer. And so we grew up around water, um, didn't have a pool at the high school I went to, but he was a high school coach um, before we moved to a Stockbridge um, outside of Detroit. And, you know, it was just, just part of 
who I was as a child. You mentioned playing all these sports. Was there a, a sport you went to early on that you were sort of pulled to the well, most? Yeah, sure. I dreamed of being a shortstop for the Detroit Tigers. That was what I wanted to do when I was little. <laughs> Um, they won the World Series in 1984, and I was a religious fan. Alan Trammell, Lou Whitaker, Kirk Gibson, Lance Parrish, you know, the, the great team of the, of the 84 Tigers. And, mm -hmm. But it was interesting. My, my experience in baseball was because I was fast. I was really fast. And every time I would go to the plate, the coaches would have me bunt because it was a guaranteed hit. And so I never really got to develop into the player I wanted to be. I played third base and some shortstop. But this kind of the natural speed I had um, eventually translated into me running track because baseball and track were the same season in the spring. Mm -hmm. So that's where I ended up gravitating towards and had my most success as an athlete. And then... For you, you know, the articles that you've uh, been a part of with Outsports and some other magazines, you talk about sexuality being something you knew early on who you were. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, even though you'd eventually marry a woman, have two children, even at a young age, you knew that you were gay. Yes. Um, how, how did your sexuality and sports go together? Well, I mean, I think growing up in a, a pretty isolated environment um, kept me from really learning about what the whole spectrum of sexu sexuality was. I knew that I was attracted to, to men um, very early on, but, and this is in no, in no way a result of my family. My family has been nothing but supportive and understanding and and loving of me through the whole process. But, mm -hmm. you know, I was, I was in Boy Scouts and we went to church every Sunday and it was the kind of the classic all-American Norman Rockwell childhood. And so there were very few, if any, um, exposures to, uh, you know, gay lifestyle, gay, uh, gay men, uh, women, and, you know, sports, Sports was not only something that I was good at, but it certainly was was not a place where diversity was commonplace in, in terms mm -hmm. of sexuality. Um, and my limited exposure to, I think, LGBT individuals was through the media, which was also very limited. We didn't have the internet. We had three channels on our TV, didn't have cable where we lived. Um, and it seemed like any any exposure to, you know, homosexual uh, people was somewhat of a, it was either negative or it was sort of comedic. Yeah, definitely. And so I, I kind of just grew up, you know, expecting myself to live a heteronormative lifestyle because that was just what, you know, I was supposed to do in my mind. Mm-hmm. And so that, yeah, that was just very limited and, and really uh, kind of directed me in, into, a, into many choices along the way that, that buried my sexuality further and further every step of the way. 
Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, like you talked about the exposure we had in the 80s. And I grew up in California, but it was still limited to what I was seeing. Pop culture and definitely sports. It just wasn't talked about. No, I think probably my my primary exposure was through music. Um, I love music and was very involved in music as a as a child. And my parents required us to either take music lessons or be in band or one or the other. And you know, I used to um, I listened to music a lot, and you know, I fell in love with the music of Elton John and Erasure, and it was you know only later that I found out that, you know, those particular artists were gay and, and started to, you know, develop some interest in, in kind of what they had to say and their message. And, and it just, it gave me a little bit of an escape to understand the feelings I was having um, that certainly couldn't be expressed in other parts of my life. When you uh, would listen to that music, did your, being a, you know, conservative family, did your parents ever have opinions about the music or who the performers were no and i i wouldn't describe my family as conservative oh, uh, okay i would you know that my dad was a principal um at the local elementary my mom was a special ed teacher they were very progressive i think for where we were mm-hmm. minded um they taught us to love each other and love people for who they were um they grew up uh, my mom grew up in an impoverished situation around lots of ethnic minorities and and they were very very mindful of making sure we were um, thoughtful and reflective about how we treated people but the topic of sexuality just wasn't something that was discussed and so I wouldn't describe them as conservative I would just you know maybe for the the 70s in the Midwest progressive Republicans or, or conservative Democrats somewhere in that spectrum. Mm-hmm. But we very, they very rarely talked politics and um, kept their political opinions to themselves, which in retrospect, I, I appreciate. So with them not being too conservative, then were you ever able to talk to them about your own sexuality or was that just something you couldn't bring up at all still? No, I, I never talked to them about it. I mean, the first time I, I ever even broached the conversation was when I called my parents to let them know that I was gay. And that was when I was you know, 38 years old. So it was something that I, I hid from, from everyone in, in my life and wanted, didn't, I didn't want to be gay for most of my life. I felt that it was something that um, made me, would make me hated by some people or disliked by others. Um, I was, uh, I'm by nature, I think a people pleaser, my partner, um, identified that pretty, pretty early on in our relationship. And, you know, when, when you, when you're hiding something for so long that you're embarrassed about, um, you become really good at, um, avoiding those conversations. And that was, that was really the way that I, I crafted my life for a long time. How could have, how could education have helped you in high school with LGBT issues? You know, you're, you're in the fortunate position where you're an educator now and 
in administration. Do you ever look back and see how things could have been different if you were taught differently about sexuality? Oh, absolutely. I think that, you know, OutSports has done a great job um, creating exposure and and giving young people role models of of every age of, you know, administrators, coaches, athletes. Um, and that alone at my age was tremendously helpful that there were other individuals that were like me. Um, and, in you know, I, I meet with students all the time about things they're struggling with. Some of them are based on their sexuality. Most of the time, it's just other issues that are going on in their life. And, you know, I'm very open about who I am and, and my partner, but it, you know, it's, it's a part of who I am. It's not, you know, the defining factor. Mm -hmm. I have students that walk into my office and we sit and talk and they see a picture of Brandon and I, and, you know, they've been in the school for two years and they may have never even known that I was gay. And they ask, and it, it is such a normal part of the conversation that you can see a level of relief in, in kids that, you know, here's a, here's an educator, here's a role model in the building who's proud of who he is and open about who he is and a, you know, a, an avenue for, for all students to, to come to and talk about things that, that they might be struggling with. So it, it's not something that I parade around the school, um, but kids that know me know, um, athletes that know me know, and I think in a, in a way normalizing it um, has been really um, impactful. And it's helped me too. It's helped me learn to love who I am um, and also see that, that there's a whole generation of young people out there that first, they don't care <laughs> that you're gay, um, but it also sort of, sort of strengthens their, their belief that it's okay for them to be who they are as well. And that may be gay, it may be Hispanic, it may be a female, but that they're going to be accepted for who they are. So then you would say then that opening up about your own sexuality has helped your relationship with students and not just with sexuality, but with, with all struggles and, and oh, situations that come up. Absolutely. Um, you know, when I first came out, I was at a real conservative school here in West Denver. And um, at the time, my ex-wife and I were teaching and coaching together and both of my children went to the school and that made it really difficult to walk into the building each day. Um, and this, that school in particular was really conservative and I knew that there would be lots of challenges, but when I went through that process and it was difficult, but it, I knew it was important for my own, my own growth and health as a human, the, the kids that would give me sort of the silent affirmation of appreciation that I was doing what I was doing helped me along the way. And I know there were, and I met with several kids who, who knew they couldn't share their sexuality with their parents or their friends because of the environments that they were in. Now they had someone at the school that they could come talk to and 
um, you know, have, have, they could have confidential conversations with it to strengthen, you know, their, their own concept of self-worth. Before we get to the coming out portion of your life, I want to focus still on what got us there. So obviously in high school, you're playing sports, you're still in the closet. You then graduate high school and enter college. You still choose a conservative college to go to, right? Yeah, so I I went to, you know, some some would argue that's probably the most conservative college in the country. You know, it's advertised on Rush Limbaugh and Hugh Hewitt and all the the right-wing talk shows, Hillsdale College. And I had a few scholarship offers. I wasn't re- good enough to to run at the Division 1 level at least as a scholarship athlete. Um, I did have some offers to walk on, um, but, you know, I was in a small town. I was kind of a big fish in a, you know, in a small lake. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when you, when you really get out into the athletic world, things get very competitive very quickly. But I was offered a sizable scholarship to Hillsdale, which had a reputation of being a very strong track and cross-country college, as well as football. Had some family connections there. My um, uncle, aunt and uncle lived in the town. My grandmother uh, on my dad's side had grown up there. And when I went and visited, I, I visited a few colleges in the, in the Michigan, southern Michigan, and it just felt right at the time. The coach was very um, inviting, and it, it, at the time, it just felt like the right place to be. And so I, I chose Hillsdale, which didn't help my my journey in terms of my sexual orientation, for sure. But it was a, it was a great school to to be an athlete at. Do you think part of the reason you chose that school was to 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 stay in the closet? That's a great question. I I've never thought of that. I I don't think so. But I mean, it could could have been a sort of subconscious decision. But it it. At least it, it, in retrospect, it doesn't seem as if that was part of the decision. Mm-hmm. But I know because I couldn't imagine a large, if any, LGBT community at that time at that school. Oh no, there there isn't one now. In fact, they have um, they have policies that are in opposition to LGBT inclusiveness. And I've I've worked with. The dean of the college, he and I were actually fraternity brothers back in the 90s. Um, and with trying to encourage them to be more accepting, but, you know, they they are just staunch uh, traditional values people. Actually met with the president of the college two, two uh, Novembers ago um, to have a conversation and... and they they're open to it in a very limited sense, but they have a lot of work to do. Yeah, I'm sure with donors and stuff, it's a, it's just not a, a situation they could flip on on a dime and and make a change fast. No, yeah, I think most of it comes down to money, and they're they're one of the few colleges in the country that takes zero federal monies, and that allows them to um, kind of remain completely autonomous. Okay. And so uh, they're pretty libertarian in, in many regards. Um, you know, it, it, was a, it was an interesting experience there. 
for sure. There was no way I could have come out in the nineties at, at that college. And uh, you wouldn't even experiment at no. that point, right? No. I mean, I had feelings clearly. Right. Um, but there was, there was nothing that happened. No. What was that four years like? I mean, with athletics and, and just college life, I mean, you had, you had to be experiencing a little bit more freedom than you had at home. No, absolutely. I was, I was a, a really rule following kid in high school. Um, very academically focused, uh, valedictorian of my high school, again, small, small school, but worked really hard in the classroom. And that translated into, to me being a, you know, focused student as well at Hillsdale. But, you know, when you're a college athlete and you're on scholarship, regardless of your level, there's a lot of expectations. And so morning in the weight room, two hours of practice after classes, traveling a lot. There was very little time to, to do anything other than school and work out. Um, you know, we had, I, I forged some of my best friendships during my time there and still uh, have very strong relationships with a lot of my, my teammates. In fact, when I came out, um, those relationships were reignited in a very positive way, which was, was, was wonderful for me. Um, but it, it was a, a whirlwind, you know, I, I had two majors and was a full-time athlete and, you know, it was a busy time, but a good, definitely a good time. When, when did you meet your wife? So I met her. Um, so I, I was kind of recruited out of college to teach at Devlin high school, which is the school that I first started at here in Denver. So they were looking for teachers that came from a more traditional conservative educational background and Hillsdale was known for that. So I, you know, I went from a, a small town conservative, generally conservative environment to a really conservative college and then packed up and went to a really conservative high school. And she was a teacher there. Okay. And, um, you know, I, I, was living in a small apartment and, you know, we struck up a friendship and, um, she's a wonderful person and seemed like someone that I could spend my life with. And so, you know, it, Randy, it's hard because I, I don't want to say I regret it because, you know, I have a wonderful son and I adopted my daughter. She was one years old when, Lisa and I got married, but, you know, I don't regret, it's just, it's, I don't want to say I don't regret it, but in some cases I do. Yeah, um, but it's your story. It's, it's what's made you who you are. Yeah, you could, you might have been, had a different life if you came out earlier and you met a man and, but that's just not what your story is about. Right, right. And I, you know, the way I've often described it is the guilt of, the guilt of being the guilt that I felt my whole life of being gay in some cases was replaced by the guilt of getting married and hurting a woman and lying to her and my children for so long. So it, it really has been a, you know, needless to say a, a 
difficult process. But, you know, we met, we got married. It was a very modest, you know, wedding. And um, shortly after our marriage, we had our son. And then, you know, I, I pretty much lived a middle-class suburban life for a long time um, until I got to a breaking point um, where I had to do something because I was on a pretty self-destructive path. When did you start your own conversion therapy? When did you, you know, sign yourself up for that? It was when my son was, um, I believe he was six or seven. Um, and I remember having a, a, a moment, what I thought was a moment of clarity where I needed to confront this demon inside of me, as I, I thought it was, um, and how was I going to be a role model and a good father if I was living this lie? And how, how was I able to tell my children to be honest and, and um, truthful about everything that they did in their life while I was living, you know, this complete, uh, you know, lie, essentially. And so I, we were involved in a church. My, my ex-wife at the time was, had, had grown up in a very conservative religious environment. And... Um, I had joined that church uh, with her, and you know, it just it, it was just tearing me apart. I mean, it it felt it, I knew it was wrong. The whole thing was wrong, and so I, you know, made the the, the mistake of going to the pastor at the time and talking to him about what my challenges were, and um, began meeting with him on a regular basis with a a curriculum of sorts to help me uh, navigate my sexuality. What? How, how was that? It was, what was that like? <laughs> it was, it was very painful. Um, you know, I had a, a, I was very good at hiding my lack of self-worth as a person I think to most people in my life, I was confident and um, capable and happy, um, but inside, you know, clearly struggling with with everything of, about who I was and and um, you know my, the feelings that I was having. And so when I when I started this this program, it just made me feel even worse. It made me feel that I was flawed um and that i was you know a, a horrible sinner and the language that was used was was just uh was just terrible and you know i was i was an adult i was educated mature man and it was it was very painful to to hear and and to work through and and that really kind of drove me even into uh, deeper depressive behaviors um, because it wasn't working. It was just making me feel worse about who I was. Do you think in a way it helped confirm who you actually were? I do. I, I do. And kind of in a, yeah, a backwards 
fashion, it, it made me realize that, you know, this was all a bunch of bullshit and that I needed to really confront the real problem. And that was the, the, the dishonesty that I'd been living, living with. So, um, you know, I really began to wrap my, my head around, um, embracing that part of who I was and, and my sexuality, thinking about what that would look like in my life. I went through a whole range of emotions of, well, do I, do I tell my wife? And then we, we continue to live a sort of a fraudulent marriage together because our, our lives were so intertwined at school and we coached together and we, you know, we had two children. Um, it was a small school community. So I just felt every, every step of the way, I felt more and more trapped in this lie. And I, you know, I had thoughts of that. And then I also had thoughts of, well, you know, maybe, and this, this is really dark, but, you know, maybe I'll get sick and die and go to my grave with, this secret. Maybe um, I'll get in a car accident and, you know, die and nobody will ever know. I mean, I actually had those feelings where that would have been the easier route um, than having to continue to live this lie. Yeah, it's sad that your hope was found in in death. It was. And, and I wouldn't say I was ever suicidal. But there were times where I felt that death would have been an easier outcome than what I was living. So how, what is your lowest point then you get to before you come out? Well, I, I am a recovery. Was, was it the conversion therapy or? Um, I think it was a combination of that. And um, I also began to bury myself in drinking and this, this, the, you know, alcohol became something that, that helped me numb the pain. Um, and, you know, my parents had always talked to us. I have an older brother and two younger sisters about our, our genetic propensity for addiction. Mm -hmm. I had a grandfather that died of alcoholism quite young. Um, and that led to a lot of, a lot of pain in my mother's life and, and it was something that, that I think slowly began to creep into just my behavior. Um, and I found myself drinking regularly um, and to a point of excess where it, it, it really became a, a choice I made to, to numb the, the depression and the pain I was feeling. Um, I became a functioning alcoholic, essentially. And, you know, I don't think anybody knew. I think there were times where my family was concerned. I got into a big argument with my sister at a wedding once, and it was driven by excessive alcohol. Um, I, would, I would get angry at my children for no reason. Um, I wasn't abusive in in a traditional way but um i was a, i was an unhappy angry person 
um, in, in, in a lot of ways. And I think I got to a point where I saw myself um, destroying who I was. I think a combination of, of that addiction and the conversion therapy and seeing my children grow into young people and just feeling increasingly guilty and horrible about who I was as a person. Um, I had to make, I had to do something. So what was that first thing you do then? Well, I went through it in my head over and over again about how I was going to tell my, my wife at the time, um, and began reading more about coaches and athletes that were out. This is where out sports came in to my life. Um, you know, on my lunch break, I would pull up an article or read something about, uh, you know, a coach that had come out and, and how they were accepted and welcomed in the community. Cause coaching at the time was a huge part of, of who I was. Um, I was a pretty, um, well-known and successful coach in Colorado at the time for track and cross country had, had been fortunate with a lot of success. And so that, that had become a defining part of, of who I was as a, an educator. And so I began to develop more confidence in, you know, that if I was going to, to come out and, and embrace, ultimately embrace who I was as a, a gay man, that I'd be welcomed into the community. Um, I, on a whim, emailed Sid Ziegler at OutSports, and he got back with me, I think, within, you know, 24 hours and started talking, and, you know, and then I, I began to sort of script in my head what I would say to my family, um, and it just happened. It happened one day where I, I decided to tell my my wife at the time and uh then you know then the really the journey of of being openly gay and and healthy um in every way uh really started then overall how did your family take it your wife your kids i didn't go well at all um I think it was it was uh, very difficult for them. Um, you know, when I told them it didn't go well, um, and I knew it wouldn't. Um, I had a you know an instinct that it it would be difficult, as I think uh, anyone would expect. You know, divorce is hard regardless. Oh, of course. And to put on this layer of embarrassment for them being in the environment that we were in a very conservative traditional environment both personally and professionally at work it was a, a significant blow to our family and uh, really has taken years for for a lot of the wounds to heal and i think we're there we still have a ways to go as a as a family um, some of them may never fully fully heal the way I'd, I'd hope to, but, um, it, you know, it, for me, and at the time it seemed deeply selfish, you know, here I was 
willing to sacrifice what was a seemingly functional family unit for my own you know sexual health and I heard a lot of a lot of the word selfish in in those coming months and years but um, I knew it was something that I had to do in order to be a um, a good father how was it professionally coming out it was your, mixed. your staff was, and and everything yeah it was mixed i at at school uh it was it was a challenge because again walking into a building where i worked with my you know ex-wife we you know and i developed a lot of, of the same friends and we had this same friendship circle most of it was overlap between our professional and our personal lives. Um, I lost some friends, you know, I had people that didn't know how to interact with me. We kept it initially very private as to why we were going through our divorce. Um, and so for, for almost a year, people didn't even know why we were separated. I was worried about getting fired. And, and that was a real worry for me as a coach and a teacher and there were some things along the way that kind of confirmed that worry but uh it it also helped me learn who my friends were my my closest friends that that i have today and as a coach you know i can i'll never forget the first time i went to a meet and i felt so alone and there were so, I felt everybody was looking at me. <laughs> and then if, I'm sure they weren't, but it, it was a slow process of being accepted in the coaching community. I had a number of coaches that I had never even met reach out and, and were supportive. I also had coaching friends that I had known and coached with for 15 years who never talked to me again. Um, well, and then one of the articles I read talked about um, when you first came out as gay and you were a coach, you were told by administration that you weren't allowed in the locker room anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was pretty funny. Well, not funny. It was ridiculous. And they, they told you that it was for your protection. Mm -hmm. But how did you really... What did you really think about that? I mean, did you just accept their reasoning or was it hurtful for you? You know, it, it, that's a great question. And, and it's one I've thought about often. Um, I was going through so much at the time, personally, moving out, living in an apartment all by myself, that that was really not something I was that worried about. Um, track cross-country aren't really locker room sports mm -hmm. so I didn't go in the locker room a whole lot anyway but just to be told that I couldn't I mean I just I remember thinking that was such a ridiculous statement or expectation um, it took me about two weeks to to really process that and then um, I got kind of angry about it. I mean, I had been a coach at that school for almost 19 years, and here I was told that I couldn't even go in the locker room, and I had never had a single incident of concern at all with 
with me being a coach, um, you know, with any of my athletes and, and they were worried about protecting me. <clears throat> and I went in one, one day, I don't know what, you know, encouraged me to do it inside, but I went in to talk to the AD at the time and I said, well, I understand you don't want me to go into the boys locker room because you're concerned about what people will think. Well, now everybody knows that I'm gay. So can I use the girls locker room? <laughs> and he looked at me like, you know, of course I wasn't serious, but I was trying to point out how ridiculous the, you know, the expectation was, um, but I abided by their wish. And, you know, at that point I started looking for jobs um, outside of the school and I ended up, you know, finding, you know, changing my, my career path outside of that district. But it was, uh, it was really hurtful. Um, you know, I had, I had invested a lot in developing the, not just the athletic programs that I was part of, but, you know, I was a, I was a, a foundational part of all the athletic all the sports at that school. Um, the school was only two years old when I, when I started back in 95. So it, it really felt, it was hurtful, but it also um, made it clear that I, I was probably better off in a different environment. Being the gay coach, does that open doors for athletes who have never had someone gay? Does that open doors for athletes to come to you and talk to you about their own sexuality? Oh, it sure did. I had probably more so from athletes outside of my own programs and, and my school, I had a lot of athletes reach out to me at the high school level um, and coaches um, about, you know, how they could, you know, better support their, their teams um, and athletes wondering what they should do if they hear homophobic language in the locker room. So it, you know, Colorado, you know, is a, in the Denver metro area, it's pretty concentrated in terms of number of schools, but it's still a relatively, you know, small state in a lot of regards. And um, I had, I had kids from all over the state reach out to me asking for advice or support. And a lot of times it was just somebody to talk to, but it, that was, that was very affirming. And then through all of this, you get involved and you can play, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when I first, you know, when I first was going through my own personal journey, it was very, it was very private about my sexuality. Um, I had made the decision that it wasn't going to be um, a, a significant part of, you know, what what that journey looked like. Um, I wasn't going to hide it, but you know why I was single and why I was um, in a different you know, stage of my life was really nobody's business, kind of the, the, my initial thinking. But it became clear, especially when Brandon and I started to spend time together in public and, and that I need, it needed to be public. So Sid Ziegler at the time mentioned You Can Play and two of the founders were here in Denver and I reached out to Glenn Whitman and Brian Kitts, who had, had been part of the foundational team of, of that group, introduced myself, and they immediately put me to work. Um, and it gave me, it really was a safety net for me. They gave me 
purpose. They, they um, gave me initiatives to be part of. Um, it was in its infancy then, and they were doing a lot of work in professional sports. So I started to do some work for them at the high school level um, and go to events. And, and it, was, it really was a healthy addition to my life and, and I'm eternally grateful for the work that, that they do and, and the, the part that they've included me along the way. Are you still involved with them? I am. Yeah, I do a lot of work here locally and um, they're looking at doing some deeper work with youth and uh, Ryan Pettengill, the, the new executive director, and I have been talking about what that looks like um, from a high school perspective. So I, I see my involvement with them doing nothing but getting bigger. Oh, that's awesome. What was it like being out, being accepted for the most part, and finding a new person to call partner and being able to date him in public and, and see who you are? You know, it was, I, I was honestly terrified that I would end up being a lonely, single, middle-aged man um, for the rest of my life, and, and I wouldn't find anybody. Um, I started reading more about, you know, what it meant to be gay and how to begin engaging with the LGBT community. And my partner, Brandon, we've been together maybe nine years this spring. He was writing for two magazines here in Denver um, as, a, as a student, Out Front magazine and a magazine called 303. And I was just fascinated by his work. He, he wrote a lot about gender studies and his writing was uh, it just sort of captured me and his style, and he had contact information on his articles. So I reached out to him, introduced myself, and uh, asked if we could meet, and I could talk to him a little bit about, you know, my life and and the the help I needed. And we met a few times. I asked him out, and. We've been together ever since, and it's been a, a beautiful, a beautiful partnership. That's awesome. What's up for you next? What are you What are you doing now? So, I'm I'm currently an assistant principal at a new school. Um, it's my second year. So after leaving Devlin, I went to Denver uh, for four years. Opened a new school in Denver, and I was athletic director there. Um, fully embraced by uh, Denver Public Schools as a an out educator, which really gave me the confidence to continue to to be an advocate for youth and and for sports. Ended up back in my old district, which is interesting, um, and a lot of it was working with with students who have lots of needs. And I'm, I'm at a, in a very different school than I originally started my career, but uh, certainly loving what I do. And I'm also become more involved with the Colorado High School Activities Association, which is our governing body here in Colorado for high school sports. And um, 
I know the executive commissioner quite well. She was associate commissioner when I was a, a track coach years ago, and and we're working together to develop a conference for coaches and athletic directors and athletes around diversity. So I'm I'm hoping to use my experience and my journey and my leverage at this point um, as a you know, long-time educator to continue to do this work for kids because that's really where my passion is. Do you think you'll ever get married again? You know, I don't know. It's it's something that, you know, Brandon and I have talked about it. We don't, I, I don't think either of us see marriage as a, a necessary outcome to a healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. Mar- with marriage comes a lot of societal expectations and there's lots of things about it that from both religiously and just in general that, that uh, we're not, uh, you know, really supportive of. Um, so, you know, I don't, uh, I don't really see that even really being part of our conversation. I mean, we, we discussed it early in our relationship, but at this point um, it's, it's not a necessity for us to be happy. All right. Let me ask you one final question, and I'll let you go um, and enjoy the rest of your Sunday. And this is the question I ask everyone. If there was something you could tell your 12-year-old self about your own sexuality, what's that one thing you could tell yourself to help you have a, a healthier life, a more accepting life? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a great question, and I'm fortunate to work with kids and... Uh... I, I do say this often to them, and it's essentially that no one in their life other than themselves has a right to determine their own happiness. And that what makes them happy is and should solely be up to them. Cool. Micah, thank you so much for coming on and talking education and telling me about your life. I appreciate it. Thanks, Randy. Thanks again for coming back and listening. I hope you enjoyed our chat. Thanks, Micah, for being a guest on my podcast. And next week, I have Richard Morris. He is a UK auto racer and one of the co-founders of Racing Pride UK. I hope you come back and have a great week.